Good morning again. Keep a Bible open with you as we uh, are going to look in just a moment at 2 Timothy 3, really the the inspiration foundation for this morning's message on Scripture. And uh, as Pastor Josh has already mentioned, if you're here last week, you know this is the second in our new sermon series inspired by the events of the Reformation. We're celebrating the five, not we alone, but we as global Protestants are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We thought we would do the same here at Calvary for several weeks, and so we're celebrating not the Reformation as a history lesson, but the great insights and truths and spirit of the Reformation, try to retrieve and recapture it in our own day, and that's why we've titled the sermon series not Studies in Reformation Theology, but rather Five Obsessions of Extraordinary Faith, insights from the period of the Reformation that will energize extraordinary faith and make us all a little bit crazy for God. Because times, the times we live in call, I believe, Not for ordinary faith, but for extraordinary faith. And for being a bit obsessed with God. If Christian faith is going to survive in the late modern world, Christians are going to need to be a bit obsessed with God. Cultural Christianity, now I'm going off script, I will be restrained. Cultural Christianity will not survive the 21st century in the West, I don't think. People obsessed with God, that will persevere. And so this is what we need. Last week, if you were here, you know, I introduced the theme for the sermon series, The Five Obsessions of Extraordinary Faith, and talked about how we're going to take a deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel. That's what the Reformation's about, a deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel. That's what I want these sermons to be all about, deeper, deeper plunge into the gospel. We're going to get our hair wet. We're going to go under the water in the meaning of the gospel. And I felt like last week we got off to a good start. But I got to tell you, I received a few Monday morning emails this past week. I love Monday morning emails most of the time, or at least some of the time. (laughs) I got to tell you, these Monday morning emails from this past week, these were great. They were winsome, they were on point, and they reminded me of things that I perhaps should have said in last week's message. And so what I'd like to do this morning at the start of this message in the introduction to the introduction to the message is I'd like to do a little addendum to last week's message, and I promise, you can count count on this, I promise I won't do this every week, right, like do a little cleanup operation at the beginning of the sermon for last week's disaster of a sermon. I won't do that every week, I promise. I feel like I needed to do it this week. And so what I'm going to give you, this is free with the sermon, what I'm going to give you are three, listen, three sort of nuances to last week's message, three concepts or ideas or statements that that will put what I said last week and really this whole sermon series in the right framework or perspective, okay? And here they are, three statements about Protestantism. You ready for these? First. What I wish I would have said last week is this. I'm going to say it to you this week. Protestantism isn't the only team in town. I realize in retrospect that last week's service could have felt, particularly the second service where there was that spontaneous applause at the end of the service that I was encouraged by, but I recognize it could have felt a little bit like a a Protestant pep rally last week. And what I appreciated from some of my Monday morning emails is that not everybody who worships regularly at Calvary identifies as a Protestant. And so what I appreciate is that you may have felt like a Packers fan at a Bears game last week. And you're thinking to yourself, but I love football. I just don't think the Bears are God's gift to football. But all the people in Chicago seem to think that is certainly the case. 
And so what I want to say to you this morning, I'll say for us, is that Protestantism is not the only team in town. It's a way of saying, listen carefully, that Protestant Christians aren't the only faithful followers of Jesus. There are, I believe, faithful followers of Jesus on other Christian teams, namely the two other big Christian teams, the the Catholic team and the Orthodox team. I know faithful followers of Jesus on both of those teams. Protestantism does not have a corner on the market for faithful Christianity. But listen, I'm not saying that the differences between these teams are insignificant or don't matter or back in history at the time of the Reformation they shouldn't have squabbled over all that nonsense. I'm not saying that. The differences are significant, and they are meaningful, and we should talk about them and think about them and debate them. All I'm trying to say is that there are strengths to the other Christian traditions and that Protestantism doesn't have an exclusive hold on faithful biblical Christianity. So you might say what I'm calling for is a bit of humility as Protestants, rather than hubris as Protestants. At the same time, y'all, don't don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't, Don't mishear what I'm saying. I do believe Protestant Christianity, listen very carefully, most clearly articulates the core of the Christian faith. Most clearly articulates the core of the Christian faith, namely the gospel. But it's not the only expression of viable Christian faith. Protestantism isn't the only team in town. That's the first first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I want to say is this. It follows closely from the first thing. Protestantism isn't perfect. (laughs) Protestantism isn't perfect. You know how this goes. Whenever you engage in celebrating something or remembering something or or having a birthday party for or kind of commemorating the event or someone's life, you you know what the temptation is. The temptation, right, is to play up all the good things and to downplay all the not so good things. But what I want to say at the outset is that while I am a committed Protestant, right, I wear the Protestant jersey proudly, I just want to say Protestantism isn't perfect. It's got its own set of challenges and problems. It can breed things and has bred things like hyper-individualism, an anti-authority mindset, and a misguided skepticism towards tradition and history. It's bred things like anti-intellectualism, and a radical approach, a radicalized approach to community that undermines community. It has and can breed a thin ecclesiology that has no place for a robust experience of the church, and so on and so forth. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say we shouldn't be so naive to the problems of Protestantism, even though it is our team or my team. I proudly wear the Protestant jersey, but I want to wear it, listen, again, with humility Honesty and not pride or hubris. Protestantism isn't isn't the only team in town, and Protestantism isn't perfect. Here's the third thing I want to say. Protestantism isn't about what we protest as much as it is about what we profess. Did you catch that? Yes, Protestant Christianity is known historically for what it is against, what it's protesting against the Roman Catholic Church and its system of merit and indulgences, against its view of the authority of the Bible and the place in the life of the church and the Christian against its approach to the primacy of the Pope, and so on and so forth. There is truth in the idea that Protestants protest 
After all, the whole movement began when Luther pinned his 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg and launched a protest against the Roman Catholic Church. Protest is part of Protestantism, but what I want to say, it is not the driver of Protestantism. No doubt you've been around someone who you come to realize doesn't really have too many convictions of their own. All they know is what they're against. Have you ever been around or been in conversation with somebody like that? It can be quite a drab and discouraging kind of conversation. We don't want Protestantism to be known that way. We don't want to carry our Protestantism that way. That what we're really known for as a Protestant Christian evangelical people is, oh, we're not against, we're against that and we're against that and we're against that and we think that's a bad idea and that's really terrible and that's all wrong. Rather, we want to be marked and known by what we profess, not just what we protest. Because what we profess is the main thing. What we believe about God, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about the grace of God, that's the main thing. That is far more important than what we are against. You might even say that what we protest is only there because of what we profess. That the profession comes before the protest. And so let me encourage you with these three thoughts here at the front of the sermon, the introduction to the introduction of this week's sermon, an addendum to last week's sermon. Let me encourage you to just keep these three points, as it were, on a post-it note, on your sermon notes as we make our way through this sermon series, remembering the principle of humility rather than hubris, even as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And again, these three points, they're free with the sermon this morning, right? Keep them in your Bible, reflect on them. They're the context and framework for the rest of the sermon series so that we hear it and think about it rightly. Now, historically speaking, Protestants have captured what it is they profess in a series of five short and pithy statements. They're called the five solas of the Reformation. We talked about them last week, solas of the Reformation. Sounds like a Starbucks drink, right? But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, last, of course, but not least, to the glory of God alone. These five solas, but we want to grab hold of these, not as five solas in some fancy theological sense, but as five obsessions that will animate your life and your faith as we lay hold of them. These five obsessions of Reformation and biblical Christianity. The first of these five is first in the list for a good reason. And we begin with it this morning for a good reason. It's arguably the most decisive of the five solas. That is, if you lose this one, you'll miss out on the other four. And so we put it in first place and we deal with it first in this sermon series. And I'm talking about, of course, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. It's been called, you may know, the formal principle of the Reformation, that is to say, it is the truth, it's the insights, the theological truth that gives form or shape to everything Protestants believe, the way they live out their faith, the way they live out church, church life together. It is the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation. I like, though, the image that Kevin Van Hooser, a theologian Kevin Van Hooser, uses to describe sola scriptura at the time of the Reformation. He talks about it as the sun at the center of our solar system, and so the Reformation as affecting a kind of Copernican revolution in the way the church thinks about the Bible and the life of the Christian and the life of the church. Listen to Van Hooser. He says this, quote, Instead of seeing Scripture as a planet that revolves around the system of theology, the Reformers made Scripture the sun that illumines the whole theological system. That is the heart of Reformation thinking and theology, that Scripture, y'all, Scripture is central. That's why evangelical Christianity is so 
into the Bible. Reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, praying and singing the Bible, exposing the Bible. Like for evangelical Christianity, this is the heir of Protestantism. The Bible, to put it very bluntly, is a pretty big deal. It's not a quaint artifact, religious artifact. We consult from time to time for inspiration. It is the driver. It is the center. It is, you might say, the lifeblood of Protestant Christianity. It is our lifeblood. You may know the name Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century British pastor and, and a famous preacher in the 19th century. He loved a Puritan who lived a century earlier, earlier named John Bunyan. You may know John Bunyan from his famous Pilgrim's Progress. Spurgeon was such a fan of Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress that he read the Pilgrim's Progress, check this out, twice a year for 50 years straight, over a hundred times in his lifetime. And what Spurgeon found so captivating about Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress was how it was so suffused with Bible. Bunyan, Spurgeon says, was a Bible person through and through. In fact, Spurgeon said on one occasion that if you scratch John Bunyan, he would bleed Bibline, he said. <laughs> so full of the Bible. That's what I'm saying about Protestant Christianity. Bible people. Protestants are famously described as people of the book. Bible people. But catch this. The principle of sola scriptura from the Reformation isn't just about a love for the Bible. That's not the punchline. Sola scriptura isn't simply about appreciating the Bible's teaching, getting to know your Bible. The punchline of the sermon this morning is like, make sure you have a quiet time and read your Bible. That is not the driving force behind sola scriptura it is about all those things as implication and application, but that's not at the heart of sola scriptura. There is something more. And what is that more? What is at the heart of sola scriptura for Protestant Christians? It is all about the question of authority. Authority. The Reformation slogan of sola scriptura has everything to do with authority. You might not think that's a big deal. Well, here's the kind of question <laughs> that it gives rise to. Who, who, or what has final authority in your life, for what you think, for how you live, for the decisions you make, who or what has final authority in the believer's life or in the life of the church? Who or what has final authority in your life? It is an inescapable question for every human being. Not just Christians. Everybody is answering that question as they go about their daily life. Who or what is going to determine and drive and shape my decisions and my thinking and my life? The question of authority is a universal question for all creatures, for all human beings, not just for, for Christians. And it was, of course, listen, a watershed for the Reformation. This is what launched the Reformation at its heart, at the core. Why is that the case? Well, because you had the Catholic Church that was insisting at the time with pretty strong language about if you deviate from this heretic, right, very strongly insisting that while Scripture was authoritative, so too was the Catholic tradition and the Catholic teaching magisterium of the church. That is, the Pope's edicts and the bishop's instructions and all the rest of it. And so at the time of the Reformation, you see, Catholics had two sources of definitive and final authority. 
the teaching and tradition of the church on the one hand, and the Bible, Scripture, on the other hand. Of course, Luther begged to differ, which is what set the whole thing in motion. Authority at the time of the Reformation was indeed a watershed issue. But here's the interesting thing. Authority is a watershed issue for us today as well. Not, of course, in the same way it was back then 500 years ago. Too much has changed for it to be exactly the same as it was when Luther pinned his 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg. But listen, authority is still the issue today. And why do I say that? Not simply because we live in an anti-authority age, where people are rejecting the Bible out of hand, like the Bible's not an authority in my life, the Bible and no church or doctrine can tell me what to do. This is an anti-authority age. That's not why I'm saying that authority is still the issue. Living in an anti-authority age. That's not why I'm saying it's still an issue. Rather, check it out. I'm saying it's still the issue because we live in an age where everyone is their own authority. Where everyone's source of ultimate final authority for their lives has gone, moved from outside them to inside them. So at the time of the Reformation, the question was, which authority outside of us? Tradition? Pope? Catholic teaching? Bible? That's not the way modern Western people frame the issue up. They do not, by and large, look for authority outside themselves. They look for authority where? Moi. So that each individual person in his, is his or her own authority. Authority in the modern Western world with the people that we bump into walking down the street, with the person perhaps sitting next to you in the pew, has become highly internalized and thus highly individualized. Which, by the way, can I just, this is a parenthetical note, I promise I won't digress on, which is why we are fracturing as a society. There is no authority, there is no framework that is binding us together. Each one of us has our own authority. We are the source of our own authority, and we are balkanizing as a society in the West into lots and lots of little factions. That is the fruit of this internalizing of authority and the highly individualizing of authority. I mentioned Christian Smith last week, sociologist, right, who's done a ton of study on emerging young adults, emerging adults, and, and I would just say adults in general, right? He's done a lot of work on, on kind of religious life in the United States. And he describes this movement of authority from outside to inside in this way. Listen to the way he describes it. Quote, what or who gets to determine what is true or good or right in or about religion for most emerging adults is each person for him or herself. Religion, he says, doesn't have any authority per se. Did you hear that? Religion doesn't have any authority per se. The Bible, the church teaching, doesn't have any authority per se, like in itself, any more, check this out, any more than shopping malls have authority over their customers. He goes on, religion offers ways to be helpful in life, ways to make good decisions. Each individual knows best for himself or herself what ideas or help he or she might need. What decides for emerging adults then about what to believe or practice in religion, what opinions they want to hold, is, listen to this, the subjective personal sense of what seems right to me, what fits their experience, what makes sense to them given their viewpoint. So how do you know if something's true or should be believed, whether it's in the Bible or you hear it on TV or you read about it on Facebook? Answer, 
does it seem right to you? Does it match your experience? Does it resonate with, with your beliefs and with where you're at? And if it does, you don't need any more justification for believing it than that. You are the source of authority in your life. Y'all, that is the world that we live in. That is the mindset of the vast majority of the people we do life with on a day-to-day basis. And let me say this as well. What follows from this what-seems-right-to-me approach to authority? You know what follows from this? What follows from this for Christian faith and practice is, let me put it this way, a take-it-or-leave-it approach to religious beliefs and Christian convictions in the Bible. When you have a what-seems-right-to-me approach to authority, you have a take-it-and-leave-it approach to the Christian faith. Again, listen to Christian Smith explain. Quote, religion, this is, he's describing the mindset of, of, of the vast majority of the people that we do life with. The religion exists to support individuals, to provide useful beliefs and morals that help people live better lives. People should take and use what is helpful in it, in religion, makes sense, what makes sense to them, what fits their experience, and, and they can leave the rest to one side. There's no need, Christian Smith goes on, for religion or Christianity to have to all hang together in a single coherent package of beliefs and lifestyles, unquote, he says. Bottom line, pick and choose what you want. And then he adds this, quote, emerging adults, and I would just say adults living in the Western world, United States, are the authorities for themselves on what in religion is good or useful or relevant for them. They pick and choose what works. Everything else can just be left out and not worried about, quote, no big deal, unquote. That's why the debates that we get in these days about things of faith and conviction seem to never go anywhere but just in a circle again and again and again and again and again because there's no ability to appeal to an outside authority to adjudicate the debate. Which is why, sorry, here's another tangent, which is why, not tangent, a little parenthesis, I promise I'll be restrained, which is why debate these days, both in the church and outside the church and politics, gets so intensely personal. How do you win an argument? You can't appeal to an authority that you're all submitted to. All you can do is undermine the character of the person you're debating with. That is political discourse in the United States. That is, sadly, the Christian blogosphere as well, so often. And what is the upshot? Hang with me here. We're taking little baby stepping here along the way. What is the upshot? Are you tracking with me of of the what seems right to me thing that leads to a take or leave it approach to Christian convictions in the Bible? Like, I like that part. I don't like that part. And well, why can you just leave that part out and keep that part? Well, because I'm the authority. And what seems right to me, that doesn't seem right to me. Like, these two steps, you know where that goes. You know the kind of, let me put it this way, people that create. Well, let me ask it this way. Has that helped people become, helped Christians become more obsessed with God? Has that generated more extraordinary faith? Has that led to greater commitment to honoring and serving Jesus? Loving our neighbor as ourself. Or, as I think is the case, has it led to a world filled, listen to me, with religious tinkerers? You know what a tinkerer is? Perhaps you're a tinkerer in your garage with stuff. 
Like you just fiddle and play around with this, and you kind of add this to that, and you like fix the bike, and you throw a little thing on it, and you kind of tinkering around here and tinkering around there, and you, you might have another place here. Like you tinker in the kitchen. You just kind of fiddle around with stuff, and you hodgepodge here, and a little there, and a little there, and you take this and leave that. You're, you're a tinker. We live in a country of religious tinkers. And to some extent, Protestant, that is evangelical Christianity in the United States, is of a tinkering variety. <laughs> little bit here, a little bit there. Whatever you think is going to suit your interests, what you deem to be important, what you resonate with, that's what you believe. Because you are your own authority. Now, religious tinkers and religious tinkering, that is not the stuff of the Protestant Reformation. That is not the robust and risky and extraordinary faith of the Reformation, or biblical Christianity for that matter. And so if we're going to see real obsession for God in our day, we need to recover the great Reformation insight of sola scriptura the Bible as our authority for life and practice. And do you know where that begins? That begins by seeing sola scriptura in Scripture itself. Here's the thing. The Reformers didn't bring sola scriptura to the Bible. Rather, what they did is they found sola scriptura in the Bible as they read the Bible. You could go to lots of places in the Bible. You know, you go to, you go to Psalm 119, that lovely celebration of the Word of God is sufficient and clear and transformative. You could go where we went last week, Isaiah 55. You could go there and find out about the power of God's Word, His authoritative, powerful Word. word. You know where else you could go? Of course, you could go to the teaching of Jesus. His temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 when He said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. But perhaps the clearest and the best place to go is to the passage that was read for us just a minute ago, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Look there in your Bible, will you? For my money, you can't find a better statement of the theological significance of Scripture itself anywhere in the Bible. And what I want to do is just briefly highlight four characteristics of Scripture that we find in this passage of Scripture, that what they do is they provide the basis for the doctrine and the insight of sola scriptura. The authority of the Bible rests on these four characteristics of Scripture that we find articulated and implied in 2 Timothy chapter 3. What are those four characteristics of Scripture that are reformational insights and historic classic Christian insights? First one is this, Scripture is inspired. Scripture is inspired. That is to say, the Bible is God's breathed out book. Take a look at verse 16. You see that remarkable language there? It's a way of saying that it's God's breathed out book. Yeah, can I get the picture? He, he breathes and out comes a book. There is this intimate connection between the very breath and words of God and the words of the Bible. So that there is an equation in Christian faith between God's Word and the words of the Bible. This is God's breathed out book. There is an identity between the Word of God and the words of Scripture. So to disbelieve or disobey the Bible is to disbelieve or disobey God, because Scripture is inspired. It is breathed out by God. Scripture is inspired. That's the first characteristic that gives rise to sola scriptura. Here's the second characteristic. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is inerrant. Because these are God's words and God cannot err, so too these words cannot err. They are inerrant. Psalm 19 talks about it this way. 
verses 7, 8, and 9. The law of the Lord, Scripture, the revelation of the Lord in the Bible is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Scripture, as God's word, is inerrant, inspired, inerrant. Third characteristic from our passage is this, Scripture is sufficient, sufficient. It's a way of saying that Scripture is perfectly suited to accomplish the purpose that God has for it. We don't need to add anything to the Bible to get it to do, so to speak, what God designs it to do. And what does God design it to do? Verse 15, He designs the Bible to make us, as verse 15 says, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. To glorify God to love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible is beautifully designed, sufficient to help us do that. Look at verse 16. You see it again iterated there, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. There's the idea of inspiration. And what follows is the sufficiency of Scripture from the inspiration of Scripture. So Paul goes on to write, and profitable. It's profitable. It's useful. Sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible, Scripture, is sufficient. Maybe I should just pause here for just a moment and say, that doesn't mean the Bible has an answer to everything that's ever, that ever comes up in your life or mine, right? So I've got sitting on my front porch right now as we speak a washing, I mean a dishwasher, a new dishwasher, because in my house with seven kids and two adults, we do a lot of loads of dishwashing, right? And, and the thing has just sort of died on us after a couple of years. So we got this new dishwasher, and, and I'm trying to figure out when I'm going to set aside the time and develop the moral courage to install that dishwasher. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pull it off. But I know if I try to do it this afternoon, I'm sitting down there. My wife Katie's not going to be there with Romans open, t- reminding me of Sola Scriptura and how the answer is in the Bible. I might need to go to Romans or Galatians or the Psalms if it doesn't go well and I completely lose my mind. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? The Bible isn't sufficient for every single thing that you could ever think about or do, right? That's not the point of the sufficiency of the Bible. It's sufficient for what God has designed it to do, to equip us to live lives that honor God and glorify God. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and fourthly and finally, it is clear. It is clear. The Reformers talked about this as the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture, and what they meant by that is not that, yeah, the Bible is equally clear in all of the passages because the reality is some passages are kind of hard to understand. In fact, 2 Peter says some of Paul's teaching is hard to understand. Their point about the clarity of Scripture is this, that in its main message, the gospel, it is clear, in fact, it is crystal clear, the main thrust and teaching of the Bible, what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is clear, so much so that you do not need a graduate degree, much less a PhD, to understand the Bible. A child, a small child, can understand the Bible. Inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and clear. Four essentials, listen, of a reformation, and I would just say of a Christian understanding of the Bible. And these four things are the foundation for our conviction of sola scriptura. God, through His Word, gets the definitive and final say in our lives in our church, in our hearts, in our decision-making, because the Bible's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and clear. But you may be wondering, what's the practical payoff? Like, appreciate the theological lesson, helpful doctrine of Scripture, got it, check. Thank you for that. I just wish you would have alliterated those points a little bit better. Phew, you got that joke. I appreciate that. 
But what's the practical payoff? That's a great question. Let me capture the practical payoff of Sola Scriptura with one word. Freedom. Freedom. At the heart of the Reformation, which, by the way, gives rise to the cry for freedom and democracy in the West, by the way, historically, at the heart of the Reformation is this passion for being free. Sola Scriptura frees us from traditional ways of doing things that undermine the Word of God. You may know that story from Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, where some of the Jews of the day come to Jesus and they see that Jesus' disciples do not keep the ritual purity laws of the Jews, right, and the Pharisees in particular. And like, hey, Jesus, what's with your disciples? Like, you're pretty cool and you seem to be pretty serious, but your disciples are a ragtag bunch of folks and they're not washing their hands and doing all the rest of the stuff that the Pharisees do. What's the deal? In particular, they asked Jesus, do you not teach them, quote, to hold to the tradition of the elders? To which Jesus says something characteristically blunt and direct, quote, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is not a mousy dude, by the way. Isaiah was talking about you, as it is written, he goes on to say, as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me. Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrisy. Taking stuff that people think is cool, been around for a while, and you make it a commandment of God when it's not. And then he adds the stinger, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Translated in Reformation terms, Jesus is saying you are violating sola scriptura. You're letting your allegiance to your own man-made rules undermine your obedience to the word of God. And how easy it is to let that happen. Because human beings and Christians are creatures of habit. All of us are creatures of habit. And so we do things habitually, and then they stay around for a while because we're doing them habitually. And you know what we call things that we've been around for a while that we do habitually? We call them traditions. And then it becomes the atmosphere that we breathe, and we can't even see the distinction. But if you're a Christian, you know what you do with the things you've been around for a long time? You baptize them in the Word of God. when they might not actually be in the Bible. This is what blows up churches all the time. People feel like their conscience is being violated in submission to the Word of God when all that's happening is tinkering with a tradition that started 20 years ago. i got to be restrained at this point. (laughs) I'm feeling things bubbling up, Tim Hester. You know what I'm saying? And just back off. Slow down, Wilson. Can I give you an example of this? How liberating this can be, sola scriptura. Do you track what I'm saying? Cuts like a knife, right? All of church tradition that can jack up the people of God. I'm going to reach back like a bunch of years. Not super long time. I'm going to reach back to the 50s in the United States. 1953. And the example of a consummate Protestant Christian, the most famous Protestant Christian of the 20th century and into the 21st century, a guy, you may have heard of him, a guy by the name of Billy Graham, who did something in 1953 that the newspapers called, quote, unquote, unthinkable, parting with tradition, parting with long-standing church practice and Christian custom and practice. How could Graham do such a thing? That's totally unthinkable. What was it that he did in 1953? Driven 
by sola scriptura. Answer, rejected entirely segregated crusades. 1953, Chattanooga, Tennessee, all the men, the women, the children of all the different races are going to worship the same Lord together in the same place, Billy Graham says. It's going to happen. And I don't care which hidebound, tradition-bound Christian is going to object. This is what's going to happen. The Word of God rejects segregation entirely. So that's what he did. And he said this, 1953, at the crusade, when God looks at you, he doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Bible says, the Bible says, sola scriptura, the Bible says he looks upon the heart. But all the reports said this, that he faced, quote, an insurmountable amount of criticism for that decision. You know where the criticism was coming from? It wasn't coming from all those secular elites in Oak Park. It was coming from all those white evangelicals in the Bible Belt and elsewhere. Who didn't have a hold of one of the obsessions of extraordinary faith. But were compromised in their compromise with tradition. Which makes me wonder. You know where I'm going to go with this. Which makes me wonder... In what way are we kind of doing something similar today? In what way are we, in what way am I, captive to tradition that is undermining my allegiance to the Word of God, sola scriptura? You see, sola scriptura frees us, brings freedom from traditional ways of doing things. It's always been done that way. And even when those things undermine the Word of God, it brings liberation. Allegiance to the Word of God brings liberation from things that undermine the Word of God. But you know what else it does? Sola Scriptura frees us from the cultural expectations and fads and fashions of the day. Culture is incredibly powerful and its expectations on all of us and it creates in all of us in some way, shape, or form what you might call status anxiety. You feel insecure and anxious that you don't quite live up to the social norms or the cultural expectations or the fads or the fashions of the day and you feel insecure. You feel like you're kind of goofy and messed up and not doing it right. Many of us, I suspect, live with status anxiety. Because you don't dress right. You don't even shop at the right stores. You don't talk right. You don't look right. You don't parent right. Kids, you don't have the right smartphone. You've got one of them flip phones. You don't have the right haircut, it's too long, it's too short, it doesn't have some cool stuff going on or whatever. You don't have the right shoes, you may have the right shoes, you go out and buy the right shoes, but you don't know how to tie the right shoes in the right way. You don't eat the right foods. Talk about a cultural fad and pressure. You, you don't eat tofu or drink soy milk or put kale in your salads. You like bacon and pork chops and burgers. Here's the cool thing about Sola Scriptura. It frees you from all that. The only expectation you got to meet is the expectation laid out in the Bible. I mean, you can like tofu or not like tofu, but I don't think tofu's in the Bible. Paul talks about it this way. Do you remember from Romans chapter 12? Do not be conformed to this world, right? Don't let the world shape you, but what? Be renewed in your mind through the Word of God. And you know what happens when that happens? Freedom. Freedom. 
But I also want to say this about sola scriptura. Sola scriptura frees us not only from cultural fads and expectations and fashions and pressures. Sola scriptura, and this may be the most important, frees us from the enslaving opinion of others. It is a remarkable thing the older I get to realize that it can be just one off-the-cuff statement from someone who's important in your life, probably from before you left your home when you were a kid, that still has a dominant sway on your life. Recently, I was with a good friend of mine who is a lovely guy. PhD in theology, pastoring a church, great dude, you know, it's a whole deal, right? Write books, this whole deal, right? He's this whole deal. And we got to talking about, like, what's been driving us and motivating us in, in his life, and, and I resonated entirely with, like, like, motivated and driven to pursue all that education, academic success, and all this kind of stuff. And he paused, and he thought about it for a second, and then he shared with me the following, that growing up, his mom used to always refer to him as blank for brains. Not blank, literally, but blank in, 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 in I mean, we're in church for crying out loud, right? <laughs> blank for brains. And he just volunteered that, and, and it was like his whole life kind of click course. What is the comment that still has a hold on your soul? What is the opinion that deep down really drives a lot about what you're about and what you do? What is it that daddy said to you 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? What was that harsh thing that mom said to you that just still has ownership over your life? Sola Scriptura is all about freedom, liberating us from the opinions of others, whether that is a spouse or a child, or a parent, or a coach, or a teacher, or a friend, or a critic on social media, may say lots of things about you, and you will no doubt be tempted to believe what they say about you on the basis of their authority in your life because you care about them and they care about you. But listen, this is the spirit of the Reformation. Scripture alone has the final word on your life. Scripture alone has the decisive word in shaping who you are and me and what does Scripture say about you and about me. It says this, that you are holy and beloved because of Jesus, that you are a friend of God, that you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, that you have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be loved by the maker of heaven and earth, that Christ Jesus loves you and gave himself for you on the cross at Calvary, that you were once alienated from God but now have been brought near, that you were once unrighteous but now have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That is who you are. That is how Scripture defines you. That is Scripture's authoritative, definitive word about you. And that is what has power to free you and to free me. Sola Scriptura. It's at the heart of the Reformation. Not just the Reformation's theology, y'all but the experience of Reformation Christianity, the spirit of Reformation Christianity. It was certainly Luther's experience. Luther was radically free to follow Christ 
because he was totally captive to the word of God. Totally free because he was totally owned by the Bible. That's the combination. The year was 1521. It was just four years after Luther had posted his 95 Theses. And Luther, in that four-year period from 1517 to 1521, had not been quiet and playing backgammon in Wittenberg. Rather, he continued to write and publish and disseminate teaching about the Reformation, the great truths that shaped the Reformation, and things like the Babylonian captivity of the church was one of his treatises he laid out with great conviction and clarity, and let's just say, with a continued writing and agitating for the truths of the Reformation, he wasn't making many friends in Rome, right? In fact, the church bigwigs, they got together and said, we got to have a meeting with this Martin Luther. This guy is a wild boar of a man, quote, unquote, is what they said of Luther at the time. we got to get together with this Luther. We've got to have like a heart-to-heart, man-to-man talk with this guy and basically like tell him to cut the nonsense. And so that's what they did. They called Luther to a big-time meeting in a ter- German town that is ironically called Worms. And it was known, ironically as well, as an imperial diet. And the day was April 17, 1521. And they ushered Luther through the back door into the house of the bishop in the city called Worms because they were fearing they brought him through the front door, somebody would kill him because he was such an agitator. And they ushered Luther into the room and And it's a large meeting room where they met. It was packed with onlookers and theologians and bigwigs of the Catholic Church and authorities and disputants who wanted to debate with Luther. And there in the middle of the room was a big big oak table and what had on it a big stack of all of Luther's writings and Luther's books. And I like to imagine a can of kerosene and some matches off to the side. And they got right down to it, and they had one question for Luther, and they put it to him directly. Luther, do you stand by these statements, or will you recant? There's only one right answer in their opinion to that question. Luther needed time to think about his response, because it was literally a matter of life and death. And so he took a day to pray and to reflect and to formulate his response, and that's exactly what he did. He came back the following day. And he offered these famous words, making official his break with the Catholic Church in a statement that is at the heart of Reformation faith, and I would say biblical Christianity, energizing the Reformation movement here in the imperial diet at Worms in 1521, not the 95 Theses that just got the thing going. Here's the watershed moment for Protestant Christianity and biblical Christianity. Luther says this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted. And here's the title for this morning's message. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot... And I will not retract anything Luther says, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. And then he concludes with these famous words, here I stand, may God help me, amen, he says. The word of God, y'all, the Bible. The scriptures of the Old Testament, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear. The church's only infallible guide and the church's sola authority, only final definitive authority. But more than that, the scriptures free us from the opinion of others by making us like Luther captive 
to the word of God. Sola Scriptura, great freedom in total submission to the word of God. This is the secret to being obsessed with God. This is the source, y'all, of extraordinary faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing gift you've given us in the Bible, in the Word of God. Thank you that you've not left us to grope around in the darkness. Thank you that we're not left to general or natural revelation to try to parse out who you are and what you're like and what you're about, but you have made it abundantly clear as you've acted in history and in a decisive and definitive clear and sufficient way as you've revealed yourself to us in the Bible. Thank you for the very oracles of God as our treasure. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us. And now we pray with this word from 2 Timothy resonating in our hearts that you would go on speaking to us. Speak, O Lord. Build us up in our faith that we might glorify and honor you and love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.